This is Chris Evans, and I'm joined by a couple of old friends, Colin and Joel, uh, from Weka, in fact, uh, these days, guys. How are you doing? Doing, doing pretty well. Yep, doing well, Chris. Excellent. Um, let's start with you, Colin. Why don't you introduce yourself? Um, give us a bit of additional background as to what you're doing at Weka now, and then we can have a chat with Joel. Sure. I'm Colin Gallagher. I am Vice President of Product Marketing at Weka. Uh, I have been around the block a little bit, um, having had this role at Hitachi Ventara and other product marketing and product management roles at Pure Storage and Dell EMC before that. I'm Joel Coffin. I'm a Senior Technical Marketing Manager here at Weka. Uh, prior to Weka, I spent a long, long time at the big blue N of NetApp. Uh, where I was running technical marketing, being in the field, etc. And here at Weka, I uh, deal with an awful lot of documentation and outbound technical content. So it's a it's a big black end now, isn't it? It's not a blue end anymore. I'm, is that right? I'm Didn't sure they rebrand with a bit of a black end? Anyway, yeah, I'm, I, we, don't, we don't need to talk about them. We're here to talk about Weka, and it's all purple at Weka, isn't it? Absolutely. Yep, all purple. Paint it purple. Great. So now, this is the first of a slightly different um, podcast series. Both of you pre previously discussed storage on this uh, podcast before, but today we're going to talk about data. So we're going to talk about data because the value of data seems much more interesting than just talking about bits and bytes of physical storage, because that's, I think, uh, an area people care about more than they do care about whether they've got hard drives or whether they've got SSDs in their boxes these days. And I think this is quite important in terms of what Weka's doing and your technology, because as part of a recent rebrand and uh, what you call Weka 4, you now started talking about yourself as a platform. Uh, everybody probably knew your file system technology, and perhaps, Colin, you can just tell people what that was and why it was so good. But I'd, I'd then like to go on and just really talk about why you can get away with calling yourself a platform, because... You know, that's slightly different to what you were doing, say, private prior to version four. Absolutely, yeah. And so, if folks don't know, in June we announced version four of the Weka data platform, and as part of that was, you know, switching how we talk about about Weka. Um, though, you know, it's been a bit of a six-month journey to that. You know, um, we've talked about being a platform in the past, but we really sort of focused heavily on that um, because. A platform is very different than a storage array. Um, you know, storage array is designed to, to store a specific type of data or a few types of data to serve them up um, um, to a, a, a set of applications. Um, but a data platform is really designed to store and manage all of the data that an organization needs to drive its data decisions. Um, um, and, you know, it has to be something that is, you know, multi-tenant, multi-workload, multi-platform, multi-performant, multi-cloud, right? Um, and that's sort of how we differentiate between, a, you know, a data platform versus, you know, a typical storage device. A storage device is primarily, you know, within, depending on how you define it, single scope or narrow scope focused, and a data platform is much broader scope that allows you to, to serve and manage all the types of data that you need to, to drive your data-driven business. So I looked it up, and the best definition I could come up with for a platform was a product that serves or enables other products and services. And I think that probably fits quite well with what you're going to talk about in a second. But before we get down to that, I'd just like to get one of you to talk about the actual underlying file system and some of the features that were built into that from day one. Now, we've been talking on and off 
for quite a number of years and have written a number of uh, different uh, blogs about this. And I think we've even podcasted um, previously uh, with your CEO about it. Liren's taken us through some of that stuff before, but it might be just worth summarizing some of the pieces within that. The things like, you know, your ability to support small files, um, your ability to scale, all, all the sort of things that you've, you've built into that platform that are worth just re-emphasizing re for everybody. Sure. Um, so when Weka came to market, it was a real rethink of what a file system could be initially. And one of the critical criteria that came out of it uh, at the time was the idea that low latency was going to become the hallmark of these next generation of applications and workloads moving forward. So the combination of really high-speed networking, really fast uh, NVMe devices, et cetera, basically brought it all together to say, we need to start taking extreme advantage of it. And so under the covers, some of the, some of the things that you'll start to see are the ability to do things like distributed virtual metadata servers. By doing this type of thing, we can handle both small IO and large IO at really, I mean, extreme scale, right? At my prior company, we had a definition of what high performance was. And now at Weka, it's almost a magnitude larger is where we start. And so getting, getting into that type of, of performance opens up a whole new world of what applications in, can do. When you start to couple that with some of the fundamental things, such as the ability to tear from that high performance flash down into an object store for to get better economics of scale, the ability to do data protection by snapshotting to a second set of media by using that same object store or even a different object store, and then use that to send data either on-prem or in the cloud or hybrid up to other locations, rehydrate the data as a fully self-defined uh, image of the data becomes really powerful and opens up a lot of a lot of possibilities. Mm. And you've got all the awards, haven't you? So, you know, IO500, uh, you know, all of the, the stuff that people sort of strive for to show, yeah, we're the biggest, the fastest, the strongest. Was that a $6 million man? No, better, faster, stronger. Um, but you've got all those awards that- you You've know, given that, me that idea for, an idea for something. Thank you, I'll tell you. <laughs> you may, we may, dear listeners, you may see that in the near future now. <laughs> there you go, yeah. Um, I'll, I'll send you my bill for that, for the consultancy later, Colin. Um, so, you know, ultimately, you've got all those sort of, let's air quotes awards, you've got all of that sort of that um, demonstrable capability and now it's a question of saying how you transform that so if we take things like the latency the multi-tenancy what are the key features that you would say justify you being a data platform rather than just a file system well let's do this in a two-part answer because i, I want to tag on to a little bit joel said and then i'll let, I'll let him um, um chime, yep. on, chime on here um uh, um, you know, if, if folks have listened to me before, they know I'm a bit of a technology historian. I love, like, you know, I love knowing where we came from. And, you know, and like I said, been around the industry for a little bit. Um, and too often, you know, when you, when, when you were designing products 10, 15 years ago, you were designing them around the technology of the time, right? Be it, you know, um, spinning hard drives, right? All the first storage arrays were built around hard drives um, and relatively slow networks, right? You know, and 
anything that sort of evolved out of that era still has that heritage of, hey, you know, I could get away with these compromises because the disks were slow. So I didn't have to make other parts of the of the infrastructure as fast because that was going to be the slowest bottleneck. And I couldn't do anything around around it because 72 RPM was the fastest I was going to get. Well, you know, boom, you know, flash drive sort of blew that all away and forced changes to happen upstream and downstream. Um, and then NVMe, you know, took that to another level. The same thing happened with networks. You know, I remember when, you know, um, four gigabit, eight gigabit fiber channel was the fastest you can get. Now you have 100 gigabit Ethernet and that's, you know, and that's growing even faster. Um, and designing around all those constraints or designing things because, you know, um, or making compromises because you had those constraints have had, you know, legacy impacts or have had lasting impacts on that legacy technology. And I think, you know, what we have done by starting with a clean sheet design, leveraging today's technology, cloud native um, deployment, you know, containers, fa fast networks, fast drives, allows us to sort of um, eliminate all those compromises and a lot of the complexity that came with the underlying infrastructure. So that's really allowed us to be sort of that platform that serves a wide variety of use cases and applications because we haven't had to compromise on picking a particular awkward chunk size or um, relying on, on trying to do you know, trying to do everything in memory because the disks weren't fast enough um, that's allowed us to, to to build something that could handle a wide variety of workloads and um, Joel I'll turn it over to you if you want to throw in some more detail around how we do all that yeah I, I don't think I'm going to go into a tremendous amount of detail but what I kind of want to tack on to is Colin's original comment about what is it what is a data platform Right. And one of the things is when you start getting to the concepts of multi-protocol, multi-tenancy and multi-cloud, I think that's kind of the fundamental right, right there. You don't want to have a situation where someone is handling data in a different way, depending on location. You don't want to have to have them make a, a compromise to say, because I have a different protocol, I have to use a different type of device, storage medium, uh, et cetera. There has to be a scale of flexibility so that there's consistency across all of their data, how they manage it, how they store it, regardless of location, tenancy, et cetera. And that is, I think, the more holistic defining characteristics of what a data platform can and should be. Right. You see, so you picked on a couple of really interesting points there, Joel. So first of all, talking about not having to have point products that meet a specific requirement. So for example, you having an AI platform and deciding, well, I need a box for an AI solution, or I've got a whole lot of um, file serving t requirements over here, which aren't necessarily super high latency, super low latency, but you know, um, I'm going to put a different box in for that because I see that as being a cheaper solution than say putting it all in one platform, or I need to put something in a physical location that might be somewhere else simply because I can't scale it in one physical location or I can only go up to a certain level of scale before the equipment says, actually, that number of petabytes is not really sustainable to go past. Otherwise, I've got significant support issues with the platform. Mm -hmm. So that's the first one. The fact that you're saying that literally almost is the definition of a platform, something that can deliver you know, services to every type of requirement that the customer might have, or in this case, the user. I think that's really important. And I think getting away from specifics about the technology, because I was hoping we were going to talk more data than technology, but that's no, no, issue, no issues with that. Yeah. I think it's entirely true that you have to look at it and say, sometimes you need to just start again. Sometimes you just need to put a, a line in the sand and say, there's no point trying to bring the old stuff forward 
nothing to say you can't learn off the old stuff, but you don't need to necessarily think, I have to drag all of this stuff into the new era. Sometimes it's perfectly acceptable to start again. And in that instance, that's what you've done. Absolutely. And I think, Absolutely. you know, uh, and something, you know, let, let, so let's have that conversation about data, because I think, you know, the era of big data has certainly arrived. <laughs> you know, I can remember reading the first article about it, you know, 2005, and is this going to happen? What, what do we mean? Um, you know, and then, and then you know, what's going to happen with cloud? And I think we're certainly living in an era where every everybody recognizes that, you know, that data is important and that making, you know, data data-based decisions, be they analytical or AI-driven or machine learning-driven, is sort of where we are living right now and where the future is going. Um, you know, I, I hate it when I read an article that says, oh, you know, that's trying to convince me of, of why data is important. <laughs> it's like, yes, we know that. We, we got that. Um, it's really about how do you... You'd be telling me data is... Sorry, Colin, I was going to say, you'd be telling me data is the new oil next. <laughs> I was just going to say, yes. I was just thinking that too. That was going to be my follow-on. It's like, yeah. Uh, I, I, there you go. Uh, 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 every now and then you still find it. Mm -hmm. But it, it, it's really not, you don't, you no longer have to convince anyone of that, but you need to educate them about what the impact of that means, right? And how do you, how do you, how do you live in, an, um, in a world where, in a, in a business world where data is now powering a huge, you know, a huge number of your decisions, um, somewhat autonomously even. And the, the challenge is that you know, it's not just that you have to deal with, you know, a massive amount of data, you know, it's not just big data, it's data of all different types. Um, it's a data of all different um, needs, right? You know, um, they can be small, they can be large, they can be, they need to, they can be delivered in a streaming way. They can, and, and to be honest, a lot of what we're seeing is things are moving from batch processing of your, you know, you're, you're dealing with your data in batches um, because the technology has gotten faster because the business demands are more instantaneous. It's moving from, from pipelines, whether it be, you know, your traditional AI data pipeline, but we're seeing the same thing happening with video editing, with genomics, um, rather than doing things in these batch processes of data, people are trying to iterate them because there's so much data and there's so much demand for it real time. And that, you, you know, again, the, the, you need to think about how you manage this data and how you manage it in real time and how you manage a pipeline with a variety of different needs um, all on your infrastructure because your infrastructure has to serve the needs of the data. Um, and I think that's sort of that's sort of the challenges that folks are facing today with, with data that they recognize that, hey, I'm not just dealing with yesterday's data and yesterday's data demands. I'm dealing with a whole new order of magnitude, a whole new mix of data profiles, and a whole new demands on my infrastructure and and on my IT group. Yeah, I think there's a there's a follow-on corollary here, and that is that you know Colin mentioned earlier that you know storage was architected based on the needs of the era, right? And if you take a look at what you know going back to 2005, what big data meant. You know, in 2005, people were going, oh, my God, we might have a customer that has 500 terabytes. The really massive, massive guys would be a petabyte. Now we have everyday enterprise organizations saying, can I get two to three petabytes? And I'm probably going to double or triple that within the next year to year and a half. And so the absolute scale of operation against data, because it's being generated so rapidly, but the scale to try and get value out of it has has just massively changed. So I think there's a couple of things there. First one you highlighted, both of you highlighted, is something I would call data diversity. So the type of data, the size, the shape of that data is very diverse now. But tied to that is the diversity of access profile. 
So there's, you know, an, an, an IO profile diversity where you choose to want to access it in different ways at different times. And that might be the same data at different times. That might be different data on the same platform at the same time. It could be a whole mix of any of those things. So ultimately, your platform has to cater for a mix of IO, data types, data access profiles, all in parallel, or potentially through a number of different protocols. And that, to me, seems like a, a fundamental that if you can't do that, you're not even on the, uh, on the page. Absolutely. Uh, one of the key things that we're beginning to see is this idea of consolidation of workload and workflow as well, right? You have these, you have these data pipelines across different types of workloads, but once you start getting out of the, the lab and the, you know, for lack of a better term, and I credit Colin for this, the artisanal AI types of feature sets that are out there, we're starting to see enterprise companies consolidate a whole bunch of these workloads together onto singular platforms. So you have, so maybe they have an image type of management system where they want to bring all the data in, create a data lake experience, maybe do a little processing on it to do, to create the data warehouse, but then they'll, you know, and that's a particular IO type. And then maybe they'll use S3 to dump the data in, maybe they'll use SFB or possibly, you know, who knows. But then once they have the data in place, they want to do things like ETL or ELT types of transforms against it, pre-process the heck out of it, and then they'll go do analysis and, and, and AI training and things like that. But the interesting thing is when you start getting into a lot of these enterprise companies, they said, we are, we're doing this for maybe image, uh, image management, image exploration, image analysis. But then they turn around at the same time and say, oh, by the way, our, we're going to take that data and we're going to do clinical trial work against it. And we're going to compare certain drug use cases. And now that's a totally, that's a completely separate pipeline, but it needs to use chunks of that same process data. And then you have a third group in there that says, oh, by the way, we're doing an entirely separate, going back to the pharma, an entirely separate drug discovery regimen and a third one and a fourth one. The next thing you know, it's actually consolidation of these high performance pipelines and workflows and so on. And so it creates uh, you know, someone else coined it a long time ago, but but the old I.O. blender uh, mm. within a system. And the thing is, each one of these particular workflows or customers, they're demanding, you know, individual level performance, individual level of concierge experience, <laughs> so to speak, for their data. And that's creating a real a real problem out there that we're trying to solve. It's interesting you use the term IO Blender. So going back to thinking about where that came from and where where people tended to use that, you can yeah. look back and think of the initial start of virtualization, which created a profile per LUN for a data store that was very dis, uh, very randomized. And then we yeah. when we added things like deduplication in, that just made life even worse because you could be accessing the same block as somebody else and all those sort of things get in the way to creating a total degree of randomness. It's interesting to think that the IO Blender is probably coming back and reinventing itself in terms of a new way to think of it. And that's that IO Blender in a big data sense, as in you might have data in there, all of which is going to be accessed using different profiles and all the things we've already just said. So the IO Blender sort of rears its ugly head again in a, a slightly different form, but with all the same challenges as we had when we were trying to deal with it before. Yeah, I, I don't think it ever went away, but 
when you go from getting from these point projects where you can have tight control over this island of infrastructure and now you start to do the consolidation and bring more and more workloads uh it, I, it just comes right back mm. so agreed so let's think about how you're going to solve some of these problems then uh, you talked there about masses of um growth which is a big problem it's a it's a huge problem in terms of cost and expenditure how as a platform do you solve for instance just the cost problem you know the cost that comes along with such an infinite amount of growth yeah absolutely um the downside unfortunately right now with data is that people you know the, the truism still exists they're not throwing data away they're keeping it in some form or another maybe it's raw data or or already processed data but invariably there's some form of archive or or colder set of data that's not really being used in a in a really really active state and and we can debate all day long uh you know what that percentage is whether it's you know 10 10 90 or 90 10 rather or 80 20 or 70 30 uh but the reality is is that uh that is very very true um so when you take these flash drives and the NVMe drives, to be blunt, are, you know, you, you pay for the speed <laughs> that you're going to get and you pay for that capacity a little bit. And so at scale, uh, it becomes a, it becomes a real challenge um, at that multi petabyte scale. So one of the things that Weka has done is we've introduced the idea that you can go to a totally different set of media if you want to. And in this case, it's an object store. Most major object stores out there, whether they're in the hyperscalers in the cloud or even on-prem, tend to be hard drive based. And the capacities of hard drives with some of the new technologies that are finally coming out of the gate from Seagate and Western Digital, where they're beginning to increase the number of terabytes per drive, um, are actually becoming really, really cost effective uh, across the board. And so when you begin to scale to multi-petabyte or, or even in some cases, close to exabyte level scale, we can we can transparently tier within the same namespace down to those object stores and recover immediately back into the same namespace without having to move your data around and create some sort of weird, uh, you know, hierarchical, the old, the old HIM <laughs> systems. Yeah, I don't think anybody wants to get back to those bizarre tiering techniques that we used to use previously. You end up with a mess of things everywhere, and it's very difficult to keep track. I would suggest that as part of the file system, that's the file system's job to do. And that becomes one of the underlying benefits of having the file system own the data, if you like, that you can build that sort of functionality in as part of your technology. Yeah, exactly. We all tried or um, to implement or sell um, the things like information lifecycle management, right? But those put an onerous burden on people to understand and classify their data, right? We're talking about data today. And, you know, I remember going in and talking to customers about, you know, um, about their data and a lot a lot of customers don't know how much data they have they can give you rough estimates but then you know as part of the conversation mm. as part of deploying a project they'll find oh we have more data here or we have you know three copies of the data we didn't know about there and and to your point chris it shouldn't 
be the burden of, you know, the business to understand what data is being, you know, what what data is old and what data is hot. That's something that we can we have the technology, right? <laughs> Let's go back to our six billion dollar man analogy. Yeah. We have the technology <laughs> to implement today, right? We can look at things and understand: Are they being used? Are they not being used? Can we predict that it's going to be used, right? If we can predict whether or not Colin is going to buy the new the new iPhone today or not, I'm sure there's a model out there that does that. We can predict, you know, all the other attributes that are going to happen with that data. Um, and yeah, that's a sure bet that will happen. Um, <laughs> um, um, but um, I'm surprised you haven't already bought one. I'm sure you missed it done already. <laughs> um, I, I waited once a couple of years ago. I waited two days after the announcement, so I'm slightly off cycle by two days. So I'm wow. killing myself. I'm trying to get it back. Uh, but uh, yeah, but again, we have the technology to predict what people are going to do with data and what they're not going to do with data. And that should be built into the platform. If where you're storing the data isn't doing that for you, isn't telling you what's going to be used, isn't promoting that to something that's performant or promoting or demoting to something that's cost effective for a longer term, you know, store longer term um, you know, storage or, or repository, because to be honest, you know, no data is cold anymore in, in, in this era of big data and, you know, and data-driven businesses. You know, it may be lukewarm or tepid, but, you know, there isn't much cold data. It's, there's a good chance it's going to be used again, you know, to, to, to go back to Joel's um, um, life sciences analogy that he gave earlier, we see customers who, you know, they'll do a set of testing on a genomic set, and then a year or two later, they, another, another, they want to do another set of tests for a different drug or a different product. That, you know, the, the stuff they, they didn't need for the last year now all of a sudden needs to be used again, and that needs to be retrieved. And the way this would have been handled before is the researcher would have put in a ticket with IT, they would have had to identify that, someone would have to go off and pull that off of a tape library, I'm sorry, dating myself with that term, whatever we're calling it now, purpose-built backup appliance, <laughs> um, um, or, or, or actual tape, restore that, um, move it to a production system, maybe maybe allocate space for that, demote something else, finally return it to the researcher. And that's, you know, a couple week long process, you know, just because of all the human intervention. Systems now have the capability today to do that automatically to say, oh, you need this data here, it, it exists here. Let me go, uh, let me go start serving it to you. And as I'm serving to you in the background, I'm going to pull it up to, to a performance here because you're going to be using it, you know, for the next month, two months, et cetera. And then when you're done, I will, you know, seamlessly move it back. Right. And that's the, that's, to your point and, and to Joel's point, the ability of a data platform to seamlessly understand and know and, and store all that data in something that's easily accessible as opposed to different islands and pockets uh, of data across your organization. Mm. So I think you missed a few steps out there. There's the step where somebody says, I can't find the tape. There's the step where somebody loads the tape and it breaks and it doesn't work. There's the step where somebody goes and gets the other tape and then goes, oh, well, that one's slightly out of date, but you know, the, the one thing about the way to do it today is at least we seem to have a better handle on data management itself as part of this. And this sort of steps into the next thing really to talk about. And that's this whole idea of user experience, because there's a user experience from the back end as a user of the data that you've just mentioned. The user wants to make sure that their data is always there when they want it and it's made available to them when they need it. But there's also a user experience from the front end that says, these sort of systems need to be manageable in a good way that doesn't require armies of people to be there to manage nodes, servers, systems, deployment. And I'll add one little bit into this because you can sort of add these together if you like. And that's the whole thing now of everybody wanting to do some of this stuff in the cloud. 
and wanting to build distributed systems in the cloud on things like AWS. So there's a whole user experience here that has to be rethought through, I think, as part of what you're, you're designing when, it, when you call this a platform. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think, I've, I think the, the cloud is really important here, both from setting new standards for user experience, right? You know, you know, managing your data in the cloud is relatively seamless and painless. You know, at least from a management point of view, we can talk about some of the some of the other attributes uh, where the cloud may not keep up. But um, from a management point of view, and you know, I remember you know when AWS first came out, and you know, it was basically put in a few criteria about what type type of capabilities you want and how you want to store your data. It was how much, how fast, <laughs> uh, basically, and and go right. And you know, um, you know, we were still selling systems that required you to specify, you know, the size of your data in cylinders, right? Um, mm. um, <laughs> you know, at least that's gone away. But, um, you know, you, you know, trying to port that 20-year-old, you know, storage array experience to the cloud, oh, we're going to take this and we're just going to put it in the cloud, really doesn't work because the cloud has pioneered a self-service. And even if, you know, even if someone else is managing it, a, a much more simplified experience for how you manage and, and store and access your data. It's, it, you know, you don't have to have a PhD in underlying storage technology to actually get it done. Um, and that's radically simplified what you can, what you can do. It's allowed businesses to, to, to scale significantly because, you know, if you had to have the same number of people to manage your data um, that, you know, that you did back in the 80s and 90s, you know, we would be employing, you know, you know, a good chunk of the workforce just, just to be doing that. Um, instead, you know, we've simplified away all that complexity. And I think you know, that's sort of what a data platform does is it eliminates that complexity. But I think, you know, so that's my, my, my rant on user experience is that, you know, it's just the, the cloud has really forced a, a simplification of user experience. And we're seeing that ripple across, across the industry. And that, that is the new standard. I think one of the key characteristics that's missing out of that is... You know, we talk about simplification in the cloud, but I think the real way we should be looking at it is elasticity of the cloud. One of the things that makes it really valuable to customers is the idea that you can consume on demand. You can consume using you know, what, whatever you need at the appropriate time, whether it's growth or shrink. And so that level of elasticity becomes very, very important. And I'll plug Weka right into that. You know, When we look at what we're doing in the cloud now, it's multi-cloud environments. It is the continuation of saying, look, it's AWS, it is GCP, it is OCI, it's soon to be Azure, but giving you things like auto-scaling up, auto-scaling down yeah, so you can help down. control the costs, make sure that you that you get that that elastic cloud experience. Because that to me, you know, simplicity is a portion of it, but uh, optimizing your operational experience and simplifying that operational experience becomes the next level beyond just can you deploy that one-time deploy was it easy yeah and i would just say that from my perspective that idea of um scale up scale down is even you know you could even add the sort of the dynamic angle to that and say it's scale up it's scale down but it's also the dynamic ability to say i only want this for a week and then at the end of a week i want to get rid of it and start again and then, and, you know, I might build out something else and then run it for a month or six months or 12 months. So I need the, the flexibility to choose how I want to use it when I want to use it, which is what the cloud does today. You know, you, you don't have to think that you've committed to building a piece of infrastructure that somehow has to have the longevity of three years. You can build it on the, on the public cloud and destroy it, you know, in a week. And that's fine. No, you know, no yeah. big deal. 
Exactly. We actually have customers that are doing a couple of different things. The first one is that they're looking at, you know, the supply chain issues of the last two years and saying, we need to accelerate. We have to get to market as quickly as possible to take advantage of what's now. We can't be waiting for hardware. So the cloud provides that, that instant gratification of being able to go in there and deploy and so on. But the other part of the equation that, that, that you teed off on there is if you want to go up and down, then there's a couple different models for how you want to deal with your data. There's the idea of ephemeral data management, in my opinion. So the idea where you start off with a set of data, a set of storage capacity, whatever you want to, and then when you're done with it, you throw it away, build an entirely new system on the fly, pump your next set of data, or or maybe you have a whole grouping of these where you start off with project one and then it goes away, pro you know, after it moves to project two, project three, and it becomes its own pipeline of storage clusters, I guess. Yep. Mm. Um, and then, but then there's the second one, which is the more persistent type of data where you really want to do the now the data must be permanent, must be gold, but there's that burst capability of growth and then shrinkage back to model, to optimize, to maybe a cost factor in there. We actually have customers doing both of those <laughs> at different times. There, there's a virtual effects house that's out there right now that is, uh, they're going ahead and they're basically saying ephemeral is the way to go. We spin up cluster per project and because it's so easy to deal with, they just say, great, when the project's done, they archive the data off, they snapshot it into an object store where they can retrieve it for future use, but then they throw the cluster away and move on. So each each movie or each visual production is a separate cluster. On the other hand, we have, you know, a biopharma company that, you know, they must keep complete control of the data. They must maintain the sovereignty, the chain of custody, the everything about it for regulatory purposes so they're going to be one cluster whether that's going to burst up and down depending on that workload and then they'll only move to a different location once they can confirm chain of custody of the data for regulatory purposes so we see both of these uh, in a variety of different industries mm. so interestingly we'll go on, let's move on and talk about some of the use cases because i think that's a great sort of place to finish up uh, before we before we do that I actually had a, a job in 1996, 95, 96, in which I managed 300 gigabytes of storage. A massive 300 gigabytes. Think about that. I, you, you can look around and find at least one device in front of you that has probably way more than 300 gigabytes. I, I'm easily. only 256. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think I've got I've got a, um, a, a micro SSD sitting on my desk somewhere. I think that's 512. So, yeah. you know, you look at that and think it's it's crazy so you can see the scale of the problem just by looking at something like that but why don't we just talk a little more about customer experience because jill you just highlighted two in incredibly important examples you know the idea of somebody who wants to just spin something up and delete it as, as opposed to another customer who has this requirement to have longevity into their system but potentially the ability to scale and you know stretch that up and down as necessary um, you know, what are the, what are the things that you're seeing customer-wise that uh, inter are, are interesting and are potentially only achievable, you know, by your platform? I think, you know, some of those examples that, that Joel gave, you know, obviously 
people who are you know building you know in the cloud applications that could never have been done before because they just couldn't get the the performance the scale the, the flexibility you know the elasticity i mean the the challenge with the challenge with the promise of the cloud is it promises all this elasticity, but too often the way it's been implemented is, oh, I need to add a burst capacity that's great. Now I have a high watermark. I'm paying for everything in that burst capacity. I can't really easily ratchet down and free up that capacity easily. Um, and I think that's when, you know, one of the challenges that the Weka Data Platform solves is we give you we, we give you that full promise of that elasticity, be it on-premise or in the cloud. We are seeing um, customers who are doing interesting hybrid workflows as well, where they're capturing data on-premise and then moving that to the cloud um, for post-processing. Uh, we have people who are seeing bursting to the cloud for seasonality. Uh, one of our customers, um, uh, they're a reference customer, so I can talk with them by name, 23andMe, right? They make those great genomics kits. Guess what their busiest time of the year is? <laughs> January first, and February. Yes. Just after Christmas. Yeah, everybody gets them for Christmas. Everybody yeah. gets them for Christmas. They give them away. And then, you know, they, they submit their tests, you know, January 1st or January 2nd, right? And then they have to process all those and get them back. Well, you know, they could have built a giant data center that could handle that, that load. But instead, they've actually moved all of that workload to the cloud. They burst up and they add additional compute and storage resources they need to. They then free that up you know, in February, March, when they don't need it, they're no longer paying for that anymore. And and so that's a very interesting, interesting use case that we're seeing. But we're seeing other ones, hybrid, you know, as I mentioned, hybrid use cases where people are capturing data from sensors or microscopes on premise um, in, in legacy Windows formats, because, you know, these, these microscopes were designed, you know, um, you know, again, based on old technology, yeah. that they're being pulled in and then, and then uploaded to the cloud and being processed in the cloud um, for analytics and then, you know, archived off um, on-prem or, or object storage in the cloud. So, you know, those are some really interesting novel use cases we're seeing beyond the traditional AI ML workloads. Um, Joel, anything else that you're seeing that's sort of hot and new that we think might be interesting? Yeah, one of the other ones that we're seeing a lot of traction in is virtual effects shops. So there's been this huge, huge trend in the past couple of years of, uh, you know, if you look at how, if you look at how virtual, uh, virtual effects runs, they need a tremendous amount of compute and these big compute clusters to do rendering of frames and things like that. And so for them, building a high watermark burst on-prem infrastructure has actually become kind of problematic to a certain extent. And so renting that compute in the cloud and bursting and scaling it where they can, they can say big render run, create massive compute cluster, and then when they're done, shrink it right back down. Well, they want to do the exact same thing with their data sets. They want to put that all the textures, the vectors, the uh, you know the final frames up there to do the work. And then when they're done, they just want to say compact back to the original base set of data, archive it off, you know maybe for reference, but shrink that capacity back down. And so we're seeing a, a, just an incredible uptake in there. We've got uh, PreMaker, Outpost. Some of them are running in. Uh, not just AWS, but Google Cloud. And uh, so it's becoming a real, that that's a market that's just ripe for change. And we're seeing that right now. Also, I, what I found interesting about that market is, um, is that 
there are pockets of talent around the world. The talent isn't for 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 video, for video editing isn't evenly distributed. It's lumpy. Um, that you know you have uh, folks in New York, you have folks in 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 California. So there are colorists in Toronto. There's editing in LA. There's post other post production um, work done in in maybe India or China. And Shanghai is another hotspot that we, that I've learned about. Um, and what they used to do is they used to have a batch process. Going back to my earlier comment, um, where they would ship the video files around, right? And they would ship the entire movies and they would wait till they were done with all the color correction or all the audio editing. And they would ship each one of these around in massive um, in massive batches. And that's time consuming that delay, you know, it, you know, um, and what they're doing now is they're shipping, they're making shipping frames or segments of video in between all them, making it a pipeline. It's become a data pipeline where as soon as a small segment of video is color corrected, it's sent off for post-processing or vice versa. And all those are moved around around the world. And that's something only you can only do in the cloud with the cloud capability today. So that's one of the reasons all these video effects studios are moving to the cloud. But also, and I want to tee up a final point here, because I want to make this point, mm -hmm. that also has great um, green benefits as well. Because uh, to Joel's point, you no longer have to maintain these massive you know, um, you know, compute farms in each of these locations to do all this disparate work. Um, you're freeing that up and you're, and you're consolidating that. And by consolidating it, you're actually elim eliminating a lot of eco-waste and carbon impact on the environment. So... One of the things that I think from this last discussion about customer use cases that I think is really obvious to me is, it's probably something that was obvious before, but it's been re-emphasized by what you're saying. And that's the, the life of data. The fact that data is alive and flows and moves and has changed. And there's no one sort of standard about the way people do that. People choose to do it the way that fits their business, their operational process, their business process. And actually you're enabling that capability and that's probably the most interesting thing about this is just that it's about workflow it's about the de the life of the data and how it changes over time and that's probably as a platform getting back to the very discussion at the beginning about why can you call yourself a platform that to me is it is the fact that you can manage data over its lifetime you can suit its needs as it changes and de evolves over that time and that for me is a platform i i agree it's uh, that flexibility, those capabilities that are long running and not just that point level type of, uh, you know, quick fix to one specific problem. That's sort of the foundational point there. And then once you layer on these additional capabilities, you know, whether it's, whether it's things like replication and data protection and, and acceleration of a business outcome, that's really where the idea of the platform uh, comes in. Yeah, Perfect. yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself, Chris. I think you know a platform handles the data where it is. Um, you know, be that in geographic location, be that life cycle location, you know, be that the the urgent need for it or the lack of urgent need for it. Um, you know, it has to be able to handle all of those capabilities. You know, sort of simultaneously, um, without you know, you know, without tuning, without you know, um, massive data movement, etc. It needs to be able to to live there and be used across the data lifecycle, across the world no matter how it's needed. Yeah, perfect. So if people want to learn a bit more about Weka, where can we point them to? I mean, obviously there's a website, but uh, where would you like people to go to, to learn more about your technology? www.weka.io. It is the website. Perfect. It's the easiest way of going. 
You can also reach out. Uh, both Colin and I are on Twitter. We're on LinkedIn. We're, we're available to help answer any questions uh, that are out there. Fantastic. I will put links to all your social medias and other things like that. The socials, I think we have to call them that is, um, so that people can find you. But for now, guys, thanks very much for the conversation. It's been great. Talk to you soon. Thank you, Chris. It's been fantastic. Awesome. Thanks, Chris.